If you remember, Deuteronomy is all about the second law, this law being given once again to the nation of Israel from God through Moses towards his people. And just continue to be praying. These next couple uh, weeks will be blessed once again with different guest speakers. Continue to be praying for the South Florida Young Adults Conference. There's been so much spiritual warfare already this week. Uh, So continue to be praying for all the pastors, their families, the church, and their families, and all that's going on. But Deuteronomy chapter 20, let's pray, and then we'll dive into God's word. Uh, Lord, we thank you so much for tonight, Lord, just the, the joy and privilege that it is to gather with the saints, to gather with the believers. And Lord, thank you that you meet each and every one of us where we're at, Lord, that you go before us and you come up behind us, Lord. And we thank you that you have not left us in this world as orphans, Lord, but you're with us each and every day. And Lord, we do, we pray and intercede for the family, those that are hurting, those that are going through difficult seasons, difficult health, Lord, all the caretakers that are represented here in the church body. Lord, we continue to just pray for this year, this year of 2024, Lord, so many conferences and retreats and events, Lord, and Lord, only you know uh, the highs and the lows that await us, God. We just pray that you'd strengthen us to be faithful till the end. And Lord, we lift up the property, God. May you continue to give us open doors with the county, Lord, with the modulars, and with this whole property, Lord. There's no doubt you've given it to us, God. So we just continue to ask for wisdom and discernment in it. And Lord, we do lift up the South Florida Young Adults Conference. Thank you for the 200-plus young adults and leaders that will be coming out. Lord, we pray that you'd minister to them to Pastor Ken, Pastor Eric, Pastor Don, Lord, their, their wives, their families. May you minister to them. And Lord, thank you for what you're doing here in our church, Lord. We just love you. We thank you, Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. For those of you that knew, today we started our fourth Wednesday of the month in fasting and praying. If you didn't know, don't worry. Uh, Next month you'll get another go at it. And our goal this year, different years we've done different things, whether we've prayed the whole first week of the year, we shut down all services and all prayer meetings. Other years we've just prayed for the first 24 hours of the year and there's guys here all 24 hours. So this year we're going to spread out that time of prayer and just one Wednesday a month as a church family will encourage you to fast. Talk to your doctor, talk to your spouse before you fast, right? Talk to your parents. And then we'll be fasting. And then at 6.30, tonight we have pizza. So, and then at 6.30, we'll break the fast together. If you didn't fast today, I was joking around with the leadership. Don't worry, we won't be taking blood tests to see who fasted and who didn't fast to see your blood sugars. Afterwards, if there's pizza left over, feel free to fellowship and break bread together. But do be praying for the Young Adults Conference. Be praying for the modulars. The Lord's given us some uh, some leeway. Things are starting to heat up. So hopefully soon we can get the permitting. We've already gotten the zoning. Hopefully soon we get the permitting. Once we get the permitting, then we have to find a, a GC and a contractor that's honest and will actually do the work and not just take your money because we live in Miami. Uh, so just be praying for all those things. Deuteronomy chapter 20. This second law. 
These practical concerns, if you remember a long time ago, are outlined. We borrowed it from Warren Wiersbe. We see the historical concerns, Moses looking back at Israel's past in chapters 1 through 4. Then we see the practical concerns. Moses looks at the people today or the people that day that he was sharing the law once again in chapters 5 through 26. Then there's the prophetical concerns, Moses looking ahead in chapters 27 through 30. And then finally, it's Moses' own personal concerns in chapters 31 through 34, he looking up. But here in chapter 20, it's all about warfare. How was Israel supposed to do war? We've seen how they're supposed to worship God. We've seen how they're supposed to wash themselves and cleanse themselves, how to get married, how to have feasts, how to have services. We've seen all this. And now God even has a specific way for them to wage warfare. So chapter 20, I'll read the first section and then we'll start going back and forth. But verse 1, it says, when you go out to battle against your enemies and see horses and chariots and people more numerous than you, do not be afraid of them. For the Lord your God is with you, who brought you up from the land of Egypt. So it shall be when you are on the verge of battle, that the priest shall approach and speak to the people. And he shall say to them, Hear, O Israel, today you are on the verge of battle with your enemies. Do not let your heart faint, do not be afraid, and do not tremble or be terrified because of them. For the Lord your God is he who goes with you to fight for you against your enemies to save you. Again, this is one of those situations when you, you sort of get ready because it says when and not if. God doesn't say if you perhaps ever have to go to war. No, he says when you go to war, this is what you must do. You must, number one, not be afraid by what you see. Don't be fearful that you see the enemy is greater than you, has more horses than you, and has more chariots of you than you, and now you become fearful. But remember that the Lord your God is with you, and remember what God has already done for you in Egypt and freeing you from the nation of Egypt. So often God frees us, He does this great miracle in our lives, and then next week happens and we're freaking out once again. And we forget what God has done in our lives, the miracles He's done, how He's already provided. We also tend to look at our problems in such a big light and such a big weight. And we see God and his power as something so small and so insignificant. Romans chapter 8 verse 31 tells us, what shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? If you remember back in Leviticus 26, God gave Israel an amazing promise. And if they were mindful of this promise, I believe it truly would free them from the fear of people greater than them, more numerous than them, an army far greater than them. Because in Leviticus chapter 26, verse 6 through 8, God tells them, I will give peace in the land, and you shall lie down, and none will make you afraid. I will rid the land of evil beasts, and the sword will not go through your land. You will chase your enemies... And they shall fall by the sword before you. Five of you 
shall chase a hundred, and a hundred of you shall put two, shall put ten thousand to flight. Your enemies shall fall by the sword before you. When we remember God's word and God's promises for us and in our lives, it strengthens us to not be paralyzed by fear. And we're going to see that great difference as we continue in this chapter. Every single one of us goes through fear. The question is, does that fear cause us to be paralyzed? Or does that fear cause us to take a step back, analyze what's going on, press into the Lord, and then step out in fear? Or step out in faith and not in fear? So now here's God's prescription to help them not be overcome and paralyzed by fear. In verse 2 he says, It shall be when you're on the verge of battle that the priest shall approach and speak to the people. Does he come up with his own speech? No, he has a God-given speech. He says, Hear, O Israel, today you are on the verge of battle with your enemies. Do not let your heart faint. Do not be afraid and do not tremble or be terrified because of them. For the Lord your God is he who goes with you to fight for you against your enemies to save you. It was the job of the priest to lead the soldiers into war with the two silver trumpets that were, that were already built and made. And also to encourage and remind the people as they went out to war. That their focus needed to be on the Lord their God. In Numbers 31, we see an example of this. Numbers 31 verse 6. It says, Then Moses sent them to war, 1,000 from each tribe. He sent them to war with Phinehas, the son of Eliezer, the priest, with the holy articles and the signal trumpets in his hand. Phineas was one of the priests, and now he's sent with the army, with the two silver trumpets, to be obedient to this command, and blowing the trumpet to begin the war, and then give this speech to God's people. And the message and the reminder from the priest wasn't to belittle the enemies, or to make light of them, make light of their size, their numbers, or their military might. The message and the reminder from God to the priest, to the nation of Israel, was to remember the size of their God. Remember the size of your God. Remember His strength, His might, and His faithfulness in your life. We have to be careful. Oftentimes, believers just try to make their enemies seem so small. It always boggles my mind. The Christians that get obsessed with the devil or get obsessed with demons. It always boggles my mind. Because what we should be obsessed with is the Lord our God. We should be focusing on Him, how great He is, how mighty He is. David says this all throughout his life in Psalm 20, verse 7. He says, some trust in chariots and some trust in horses, but we will remember the name of the Lord our God. Even David in his first encounter, his first battle with a human, with Goliath, we see in 1 Samuel 17, 14, does he make light of, of Goliath's size? Does he make light of his warfare, of his weapons? Not at all. But what he focuses in on is God, his power, and his faithfulness. 1 Samuel 17, 47, it says, Then all this assembly shall know that the Lord does not save with sword and spear, 
For the battle is the Lord's and he will give you into our hands. One last Old Testament scripture on this. Proverbs 21 verse 31. It says, the horse is prepared for the day of battle, but deliverance is of the Lord. Some trust in horses, some in chariots, but we must remember the name of our God. We must remember who God is. We need to make sure that we are weighing out the size of our God as something that truly is heavier and greater and greater, not greater, greater and mightier than the size and the weight of our enemies. So often we lose focus and we put a microscope on the size of our trials, our enemies, and the difficulties of life. We need to be mindful of what Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 5, 7, that we walk by faith and not by sight. Our whole entire life is about walking by faith and not by sight. Warren Wiersbe, he says, there is a fear that mobilizes a person as when you hear a fire alarm going off. But there's also a fear that paralyzes a person. And here's the fear that Moses was addressing. When we fear the Lord and trust him, we need not to fear our enemy. Israel had nothing to fear, for the God who drowned the army of Egypt would defeat the armies of Canaan. In Proverbs 29, verse 25, it tells us, The fear of man brings a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord shall be safe. If you need a, a picture for that, consider the life of Saul and the life of David. King Saul's life was always fearful. What are people going to think about me? What about this situation? What about that? What about David? What about Jonathan? Now Jonathan's popular. It's a snare. It will choke you out. But David, how he trusted in the Lord God when it came to Goliath, when it came to his sin and forgiveness of his sin, when it came to even God's judgment upon his own life, he trusted in the Lord and we see that the high priest was to lead the nation of Israel before they go to war. And for us, we are so blessed because we too have our own high priest. But our high priest doesn't just go before us into the battle. He promises to go before us and behind us. Not in just the battle, but in every season of life. Let's turn to Hebrews chapter 4. And oh, the great high priest that we have. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14. It says, Seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So our high priest, not only does he go before us, we're going to read in a moment how he goes behind us, but he's, he can sympathize with us. 
The, the high priests here, we don't know if they've ever gone to war before or if they themselves have battled or wielded a sword. But here, Jesus, we know that he's gone through every single temptation and weakness we can ever imagine dealing with. And he's come out blameless and without sin. We can turn to Psalm 139, verse 5. And here we consider more how our high priest goes before and behind us. Psalm 139, verse 1 through 5, David once again here. He says, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know my sitting down and my rising up. You understand my thought afar off. You comprehend my path and my lying down. And you are acquainted with all my ways. For there is not a word on my tongue. But behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. And then he says, you have hedged me behind and before and laid your hand upon me. Finally, Isaiah 52 verse 12 says, for you shall not go out with haste nor by flight for the Lord will go before you and the God of Israel will be your rear guard. He goes before us and he guards us from the back. He has our six. He watches our back. And what an example we have from our high priest. He promises to never leave us, never forsake us. And now what we should do is learn from this example of the people of Israel to wait on the Lord and to wait for the word and the go-ahead of our high priest before we make decisions and before we go to war. Sadly, there are many Christians that just assume and assuming gets you into trouble. When we just assume, of course God is in this. Of course this is the next step. Of course this is what I do. Be careful. And sadly, at times as believers, we make decisions based on fear, based on emotion, based on a whim, based on a fortune cookie, right? Based on all sorts of random things we make decisions. Are we waiting upon our high priest and asking him, Lord, what would you have me to do? And then follow his leading. It's exactly what Psalm 27 verse 14 tells us. Wait on the Lord. Be of good courage and he shall strengthen your heart. Wait, I say, on the Lord. We can think of Isaiah how he says to wait on the Lord and our strength will be renewed. Wait on the Lord. Don't just rush to make that decision on a whim. Don't just make a decision based on emotion or fear. Wait on the Lord and wait for your high priest to blow that trumpet, to begin moving and saying, all right, Zach, come on, I'll, I'll lead you. I'll lead you in the way. Now in verse 5, we see a, a difference here. Verse 5 through 7. The high priest has done his thing. He gives the speech. He reminds the army, it's not about your enemy. It's about the Lord God and how big he is, how holy he is, how great he is. Remember how he defeated the whole entire nation of Egypt and their armies. But now in verse 5 through 7, then the officers shall speak to the people saying, what man is there who has built a new house and has not dedicated it? Let him go and return to his house, lest he die in the battle, and another man dedicate it. Also, what man is there who has planted a vineyard and has not eaten of it? Let him go and return to his house, lest he die in the battle, and another man eat of it. 
And what man is there who is betrothed to a woman and has not married her? Let him go and return to his house, lest he die in the battle and another man marry her. Deuteronomy 24 verse 5 has a similar law in regard to this going to war and being engaged. Deuteronomy 24 verse 5 it says, When a man has taken a new wife, he shall not go out to war or be charged with any business. He shall be free at home one year and bring happiness to his wife whom he has taken. Some wives would rather be happier with their husband out at work or out at war maybe, right? But here the charge is stay at home and be happy with your wife for a year. And here what we see is that there are different seasons in life. And God wants each of us to tend to the season we're in with all our might. If you would, you could turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 3. Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 1 through 4, famous portion of scripture. But it says, to everything there is a season, a time, and a purpose under heaven. A time to be born, and a time to die. A time to plant, and a time to pluck what is planted. A time to kill and a time to heal. A time to break down and a time to build up. A time to weep and a time to laugh. A time to mourn and a time to dance. We jump to verse 8 and he says, A time to love and a time to hate. A time of war and a time of peace. I'll take a, a quick little break here and just realize this. It's not as popular as it was before, but there were some Christians that were just hammering as believers. We need to be complete pacifists and just be doormats for everyone and everyone. And right, Second Amendment, guns, self-defense is not biblical. We don't see that here. We see here God says, hey, there is a time for war and a time for peace. There's a time to kill, not murder, but there's a time to kill and protect and save. And then there's a time to live and plant and pluck what's planted. But what we can get here from the context of Deuteronomy 20 and of Ecclesiastes is that there's different seasons and times for every single one of us. And we need to be careful that we're not looking down on others who may be in a different season of life than we are in. We need to realize one season is not holier than the other. All of it should be done for the glory of God. Whether it was the season of these three types of men to enjoy their new homes, to enjoy their first fruits, or to enjoy the wives that they were married to. They should go and do that. God is not forbidding to do so. However, we need to be careful that we are not growing the heart of a Pharisee where we think we're holier than the person next to us because perhaps we have less responsibility in life and now we can focus more on serving the Lord our God. That, that's the heart of a Pharisee. The danger is when we are double-minded. When we're trying to do two things and be in two places at once. We must search the Lord our God and be single-minded in His calling and in the season He has called us to. We should not hold others back that are trying to go full throttle in the season that they're called to. And we should not be double-minded in what we're trying to do. We should just be faithful to what God has called us. Wait on that high priest and get your marching orders from him and then be faithful to it. Jesus would say in Luke chapter 9, 62, no one 
having put his hand to the plow and looking back, is fit for the kingdom of God. Paul in Philippians chapter 3, verse 13 and 14, Paul says, One thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead, I press towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Where has God called you? What season has he called you to? Be faithful in that with all your might. If right now it's a season of a new home, man, be faithful to that. Season of being able to reap that harvest, be faithful to that. That season of enjoying your new wife, your new husband, enjoy that. But if he's called you to a season of war and battle, guess what? Enjoy that and be faithful in that as well. I love what Pastor Joe Foe says. He says, we are called to be involved with the things of this life, but not be entangled with the things of this life. We are called to be involved, but not entangled. We know that Paul commanded Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 4. Thinking of the Roman guards and the Roman armies, he says, No one engaged in warfare entangles himself with the affairs of this life, that he may please him who enlisted him as a soldier. And we are, there are many of us who are called to be fathers, to be mothers, to be husbands, to be wives, to be employees, employers, and we need to do these things in excellence. However, beware that you're not being entangled with the affairs of this life that have no weight in eternity. And that's the great question. This thing that's consuming your mind, will it have a weight in eternity? Being a good dad, being a good mom, a huge weight in eternity. We can aid our sons and daughters in wanting to come to the Lord, or we could be a huge reason why they want nothing to do with the Lord. A huge weight in eternity. The way we work, our work habits, our work ethic, the way we are at work with unbelievers, there's a weight in eternity. Peter says that the way we conduct ourselves should cause unbelievers to glorify the Lord God. But now if we're getting consumed with the things of this world, the latest gadget, the latest gizmo. I don't know what iPhone we're on now. I I lost track. I gave up on it, right? The latest car, the latest Hollywood gossip. Who's going to win the Oscars? What about this album? What about that? There are many things in this life that if we take a step back and we're honest, have no weight in eternity. A lot of the sports, a lot of our hobbies will have no weight in eternity. Can we enjoy these things? Absolutely. However, make sure that you are not entangling yourself in it and now causing yourself to not be focused on the war going on. Charles Spurgeon, he says, There is a way, you know, of making the actions of common life subservient to the purpose of divine grace. This is the Christian's business. Let him take care that he be not entangled with the cares of this life. There are many of you who are business owners. You should run that thing in all you can to bring honor and glory to the Lord. We need to bring these different things in life and just make sure that they are subservient to the purpose of divine grace. Warren Wearsby, he says, identification with the world and its needs is one thing, but imitation of the world and its foolishness is quite another. 
We, we have needs. We need to feed our families. We need to save money. We need to be wise. We have needs. But now if we're imitating this world, the foolishness of it, it's quite another thing. We can consider Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, 58, how he says, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast and immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain. Hey, take a step back and ask yourself, are you abounding in the work of the Lord? Because it says they're always abounding in the work of the Lord. And you guys, you're Greek scholars. What does that word always mean? Always. Always. We are to always be about our Father's business. Jesus said he always was about his Father's business. His will was to do the, fa- the, the will of the Father that sent him. Then we go to verse 8. Deuteronomy chapter 20, verse 8. And here now I see a separation. There was an, okay, hey, you have a new home. You've been planning. They have to wait four years to be able to take the first of their crops. You've been waiting for four years and now you're going to war. No, wait, enjoy that harvest. You just got married. Wait, enjoy your wife. But now verse 8 is something I believe altogether different. The officers shall speak further to the people and say, What man is there who is fearful and faint-hearted? Let him go and return to his house, lest the heart of his brethren faint like his heart. You see, cowardice and fear was not allowed in the armies of Israel. Because the fear that paralyzes cannot coexist with faith. The fear that paralyzes cannot coexist with faith. This is why Jesus, he gives pow pow to the disciples. He chastens them in Luke chapter 8 verse 25. And he says to them, where is your faith? And they were afraid and marveled, saying to one another, who can this be? For he commands even the winds and the water and they obey him. We see here Jesus says, where's your faith? Because the disciples were paralyzed with their fear. We know that Israel just had a whole generation die because of the cowardice of ten men. Ten men were cowards and weren't obedient to God, weren't obedient to his word, were not obedient to his promises. And now a whole generation in Israel died. In Deuteronomy chapter 1 verse 28 it says, where can we go up? Our brethren have discouraged our hearts, saying the people are greater and taller than we. The cities are greater and fortified up to heaven. Moreover, we've seen the sons of Anakim there. They were focused on the size of the enemy and not on the size of their God. And this fear spread throughout the nation of Israel, paralyzed them, and it crippled them. I believe this is why Paul did not want Mark to go with them on their mission trip. This great division between him and Barnabas in Acts 15, 38. Paul insisted that they should not take with them the one who had departed from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. G. Campbell Morgan, he says, The men who lacked courage were to remain behind because... Fear is contagious. We are driven to the conclusion that thus armies sifted would have a quality that is lacking entirely when they are made up of all the different sorts and the different conditions. 
When you have a group of men that are just on target with the Lord and they're not fearful, they're faithful, they're searching the Lord, they're hungry for the things of God, it is incredible what God is able to do. But when you have peppered in that group of men, men that are fearful, men that are in sin, all of a sudden the waters get muddied and things start slowing down. We saw last week how Jesus didn't do many miracles in Nazareth. Because of their lack of faith. Faith and fear cannot coexist. And God had Gideon do this exact thing. In Judges chapter 7 verse 3. And put yourself into into Gideon's sandals as the leader of the army here. He says, now therefore proclaim in the hearing of the people saying, whoever is fearful and afraid, let them turn and depart at once from Gilead. Say, hey, if any of you guys are afraid, you can go home. The only problem for Gideon is that 22,000 people went home. That's the problem. That was a great problem. Only 10,000 remained. Two-thirds left. Two-thirds were afraid and only 10,000 remained. And what did God say? It's still too big. It's still too big. We need to cut that down. I love what David Guzik has to say on this. He says, to God, the size of the army wasn't important. The heart of the army was far more important. He didn't want people who might be distracted from the real battle by worrying about the cares of everyday life, whether it was their home, their vineyard, or their fiancé. Nor did he want people who were not truly trusting him. God could do more through a smaller army that was really committed to him than through a bigger army that was full of compromise. Are we that small army that is truly committed to the Lord our God? Or are we just all worried about numbers and yet there's so much compromise within our heart? Especially for the men here, remember, cowardice is not attractive or becoming of a man, much less a Christian man. We should be the most bold and the most obedient to the Lord God. The men that out of all men in this world put fear to the side. We analyze the situation and we're obedient to the things of God. Because Revelation 21 verse 8 says, But the cowardly, unbelieving, abominable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. The cowardly and the unbeliever and the murderer and the sexual moral, God sees all of them on the same plane. We will all go through fear and doubt But we must allow our faith to overcome that fear instead of just stopping in paralysis. And look at God's grace with the disciples. How often would he tell them, where is your faith? Oh, ye of little faith. How often would Jesus say that to his disciples? The disciples that all ran when Jesus was in his moment of greatest need. Only John is there at the crucifixion. Did he get rid of them? Did he fire them? No, he still wanted to use them. So perhaps in the past you've allowed cowardice and fear to grip your heart and overtake you. Come to the Lord, ask for forgiveness. He still wants to use you. Even like we just mentioned, Mark with Paul. Later on, Paul says, hey, bring me Mark. He's profitable for me and for the ministry. 
Don't allow your past failures to just lead to more paralysis. Come to the Lord and ask him to forgive you and allow that fear to drive you to analysis of the word of God and of your situation. You're fearful in a situation. Perhaps you're fearful of your money and your finances. Hey, analyze the situation, then analyze the word of God and step out in faith. Perhaps you're fearful of your family, of your kids, where they're at. Take a step back, analyze where they're at, analyze the word of God, be obedient to it and step out in faith. And be reminded of all the context here. We don't have to step out alone. Who goes before us? Jesus, he's going to go before you. Even though you're fearful, take that step of faith. Because he goes before you and he's right behind you. Let us step out in obedience to his commands. Because as 2 Timothy 1.7 tells us, God has not given us a spirit of fear. But his sons and his daughters have been given a spirit of power and of love and of a sound mind. That's what he's given us. Verse 9 Back to Deuteronomy 20. And so it shall be when the officers have finished speaking to the people that they shall make captains of the armies to lead the people. What we see here is that even God's army needed leadership. And God uses men for leadership. We are all in the Lord's army, but God places authority over us. And when we're grateful and content that we've been placed under authority, it seems like God has a habit to then put that type of person into authority. Uh, There are people you talk to, hey, what about this situation? It's just me and God, man. I only answer to the Lord. I don't trust man. You hear people say things like that. But yet, what does God use? Man, he uses human beings. That's the way he works things out. If he wanted, he could have just used the angels. They do a far greater job than any of us. But he chooses to use men and to use women as well. Now in verse 10 through 11, really verse 10 through the end of this chapter, we're going to see God giving specific instructions for specific battles. Verse 10 and 11, he says, When you go near a city... To fight against it, then proclaim an offer of peace to it. And it shall be if they accept your offer of peace and open to you, then all the people who are found in it shall be placed under tribute to you and serve you. So God says, first and foremost, offer up terms of surrender. If you don't have to spill blood, don't spill blood. If you don't have to do that, don't do it. At first, Offer up terms of surrender. And if they accept it, just know that they have to pay taxes and they must serve the nation of Israel forever. Listening to a uh, teaching, it's been said of Alexander the Great. As he'd be marching to certain cities, they would literally open up the doors of the city and have a parade to welcome him in because they knew they didn't all want to die. So instead of dying, you welcome the guy in, say, hey, we surrender, whatever you want is good, I'd rather be alive and pay taxes, and they would welcome him in. There were cities, this was an option to them. They knew of the mighty works that God had done for the nation of Israel. We know that Rahab, she said, the whole entire city of Jericho is fearful because we know what the Lord your God has done to Egypt. They could have just surrendered the white flag and say, God, hey, you guys take over. But now we keep reading 
Verse 12, now if the city will not make peace with you, but makes war against you, then you shall besiege it. And when the Lord your God delivers it into your hands, you shall strike every male in it with the edge of the sword. But the women, the little ones, the livestock, and all that is in the city, all its spoil you shall plunder for yourself. And you shall eat the enemy's plunder which the Lord your God gives you. Thus you shall do to all the cities which are, here's the key, very far from you which are not of the cities of these nations. We're going to see in a moment why that's so important. But here in these verses, he's saying, if the city would not accept the terms of peace and the terms of surrender, then they would besiege the city. They'd create a wall around it. Nothing gets in. Nothing gets out. Starve out the city. Weaken their forces. And then take over. Once you take over, you must slay every male. And in ancient warfare, there weren't too many prisoners of war because every man was seen as a threat and a potential for more problems down the line and now the spoil and the plunder was God's way of providing for the soldiers that were out in the battle but now in verse 16 through 18 we see God had specific rules and regulations of warfare for the cities, the seven cities of the Canaanites that were nearby. But of the cities of these people, which the Lord your God gives you as an inheritance, you shall let nothing that breathes remain alive. But you shall utterly destroy them, the Hivite and the Amorite and the Canaanite and the Perizzite and the Hivite and the Jebusite, just as the Lord your God had has commanded you, lest they teach you to do according to all their abominations which they have done for their gods, and you sin against the Lord your God. Unbelievers love to take these chapters in the Bible and say, what kind of a God is this that would have genocide and wiping people out? But we must remember that these nations and these people were not innocent. God was using the nation of Israel as his tool of judgment upon these sinful nations. Because these sinful nations were committing sin and atrocity and abominations for centuries. You see in Genesis 15-16, God tells Abraham prophetically that in the fourth generation, his sons will return there because the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. God was waiting till his grace upon grace upon grace hit its limit. And he said, okay, now it's time for judgment. And we should consider, even as I just mentioned, Rahab. Rahab came to the spies and she accepted the Lord God. She accepted Israel and the God of Israel and she lived and her family lived and everyone who humbled themselves under the God of Israel was more than willing to survive. So it's not that this God is a monster that just wipes people out. No, everything is going to be fair and righteous and just. In the end, no one will be able to have an excuse against the Lord our God. 
And here what they were called to do was to not allow a single living thing to survive. Lest Israel learn their sin and then have to one day be judged in the same manner. And sadly what happened to Israel? They had to be judged in the same manner. And then God used Babylon to come against Israel to deal with their sin. For us today... What we need to realize is in our spiritual warfare, we must be merciless when it comes to the judgment of our own sin. We must. And we tend to do the opposite. When it's the sin in our brother or sister, no mercy. All the mercy is out the window. But when it's our sin, it's woe is me, give me another chance. And we make all these excuses and reasons. We need to be mindful of Galatians 5 verse 9, that a little leaven leavens the whole lump. What's the sin you're allowing to live? We see in King Saul's life, he allowed a little bit of sin to live, and it continued to kill him and kill him and kill him till he was killed and murdered by his own sin that he allowed to live and breathe. Show no mercy with your sin. Know that it will lead to death. Finally, verse 19 and 20, he says, When you besiege a city for a long time while making war against it to take it, you shall not destroy its trees by wielding an axe against them. If you can eat of them and do not cut them down to use in the siege, for the tree of the field is man's food. Only the trees which you know are not trees for food you may destroy and cut down. To build siege works against the city that makes war against you until it is subdued. So many ancient nations, when they would go to war, they just wipe out all the trees, use all the trees to make catapults, make these siege works, these giant ladders against the wall, battering rams, whatever was nearby. But here God reminded Israel that war was not their end-all, be-all. Their end-all be-all was to enjoy the land, to move in and to enjoy the land with their sons and with their daughters. So they needed to keep those mango trees alive. They needed to keep the avocado trees alive. They needed to keep all the fruit trees alive because war was not their their end-all be-all. They were to have war with the enemies of God, have war with their own sin, but then be able to enjoy with our sons and our daughters. To be able to enjoy in our own lifetime and for our children to enjoy as well. So chapter 20, this chapter of warfare, what should we be mindful of? Remember to wait on the Lord your God. Remember to be mindful of Him. Be mindful of what He's already done in your life. Don't be so focused on the enemy, so focused on the trial, so focused on the difficulties Take that step back and stay focused on the Lord your God, His power, His might, and His faithfulness. Remember to wait on the Lord. Don't just assume and jump to conclusions and jump to the next thing. Take a step back, wait on the Lord, be strengthened, be encouraged, and then go wage that good warfare. And finally, if you're battling with sin in your own life right now, show No mercy. Show no mercy. Don't keep that friendship. Don't keep that relationship. Don't keep that phone number. Don't keep that. So often we leave this emergency break glass. 
And in case there's ever a time where I want to go back to my sin, in case there's ever a time I want to do this, we leave some way to get there. Burn the ships. Leave no way to get back. Make it as difficult as possible to get back because you're under new leadership. You're under new management. It is the Lord God who rules and reigns in your life from here on out. Lord, we thank you so much, Lord. Thank you for the reminder in your word of the great high priest that we have. Jesus, thank you so much for the depth of the love that you have for us, Lord. Thank you that you've gone before us, Lord. You are that perfect shepherd that has gone through all, everything we can imagine. And then you bring us along, Lord. So help us if we've forgotten that, Lord. If we've gotten off the path, Lord. If we've left you, if we've forsaken you. Lord, we pray that today would be that day of salvation. Today would be that day when we call out for mercy. That we humble ourselves and say, Lord, please forgive me. Please forgive me, Lord. I want to serve you and follow you. Lord, forgive me for loving other things, other people, other vices more than I love you. And Lord, pray that you just strengthen us, Lord, for this next season of 2024, Lord, whatever it looks like. Again, God, only you know. But Lord, may you just give us a greater hunger to abide with you, Lord. Give us a greater love to be with you, to spend time with you, to wait upon you. Lord, thank you that your mercies are new every morning. Lord, thank you for your faithfulness, God. We pray again for everyone here, Lord, every season that we're in, every difficulty, every war that we're about to be facing, Lord, help us to keep our minds fixed upon you, Lord. We love you. We thank you, Jesus. It's in your precious name we pray. Amen.